Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we explore the far reaches of the globe in search of unique characters and stories to share. Reach beyond your front door as we uncover new perspectives, intriguing ideas, and lessons learned over time. Let's jump in. Diversity and inclusion. These are terms that are bandied about boardrooms and many public arenas, but what do these hefty words really mean in our daily lives, especially when we travel? How these closely related social values are expressed or repressed can significantly impact people's sense of belonging, their sense of security, whether at home or abroad. We dig into diversity and inclusion more deeply with Pauline Kajura and Cole Gately, co-directors of Intersecting, an anti-racism and anti-oppression consulting firm based both in Europe and Canada, about how we can each uncover our own biases as well as become better allies in every setting to affirm all people of all abilities, gender, sexual orientation, race, religion, culture, and customs. So let's come together and get real about diversity and inclusion. So, Harris, there's a common perception that if one has the time and money, everyone can travel. Mm -hmm. Perhaps there's some truth to this, but we don't often think enough about how complicated and potentially dangerous travel can be for some people. I know. Even if we just simply consider people with mobility issues, travel can be quite daunting. Many people have assistive devices of all kinds, like wheelchairs, walkers, canes, braces, but accessibility widely varies from place to place. It does. And as a population ages, accessibility becomes more of an issue for more people too. It does. Daily living can be demanding enough for those with mobility issues, even at home. Just think about then having to navigate your way around unfamiliar environments with a whole new set of unknown challenges. Accessibility aside though, travel can be difficult too for reasons of discrimination and exclusion. Discrimination based on gender, race, religion, and sexual orientation is possible really no matter where you are in the world. But in some cases, travel to some destinations can be literally dangerous. Yeah, it's a very good thing then that the travel industry is placing a greater emphasis on inclusion and diversity more so than ever before. But as recently as 2019, an Accenture survey of more than 2,700 consumers from the airline, cruise, and lodging segments across the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom reported that many travel companies do not prioritize inclusion and diversity. This may have changed, though, as it seems that since the pandemic, there seems to be more demand for greater diversity and inclusion among travelers. In fact, according to the Accenture survey, 74% of people polled cared about whether a company offers a range of products and services to make those in their diverse segment feel included. I hope that the travel industry is really listening to what people have to say. Me too. Take Martin Heng, for example. He is the accessible travel manager and editorial advisor at Lonely Planet. He himself suffered a catastrophic spinal cord injury in 2010, and he claimed that the experience opened his eyes to the difficulties experienced during travel. Well, I would imagine it would. So what specifically are we talking about when you refer to difficulties experienced by disabled travelers? Well, there are so many. We are only scratching the surface in this episode, Harris. Obviously, 
obviously one major issue is wheelchair accessibility. This can be really hampered by curbs, lack of elevators, doors, and the inaccessible baths and showers in a hotel room. Hang says inclusive tourism also includes parents with strollers, temporary conditions that can impact the ability to move about with ease, such as a broken leg or illness. Also, it should be noted that most seniors can benefit from barrier-free environments. I think we could all really benefit from a barrier-free environment, couldn't we, Walker? Absolutely. So we have been talking about barriers to ease of movement, but let's talk about travel environments that can pose a threat to people's well-being, safety, and sense of belonging due to discrimination or harassment due to race, gender, or sexual orientation. Well, according to an article by Alexandra Gillespie for National Geographic, rideshare bookings are canceled by drivers more often for black people than white people Hmm. and for 2SLGBTQ plus riders compared to straight users. Black travelers are more likely than white ones to have their Airbnb bookings denied as well. So you can just imagine how that kind of discrimination can impact not only enjoyment of travel, but could possibly pose real risks. Mm -hmm. Gillespie also most interestingly mentioned that research shows that the facial scanning technology becoming increasingly popular in airports is more likely to misidentify people of color and likely TSA body scans can either out trans travelers or flag them as security threats. That's really kind of scary. You know, I did notice when I was coming through border control just this past weekend from the Galapagos that a predominant number of people of color were pulled out of the regular line for further questioning. This, of course, is just based on an observation I made over about 30 minutes standing in line, but it was noticeable. Today, we have the opportunity to speak with Pauline Kajura and Cole Gately, co-directors of Intersecting, an anti-racism and anti-oppression consulting firm. Together, they create and deliver education, develop policy, and support strategic planning for the advancement of diverse representation and inclusion in the public space. Welcome, Pauline and Cole. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. We're so happy that you're here. So first off, I just want to know how you two were called to this very important work and how you came together. Well, it evolved over time. I had worked at SASHA, which is the Sexual Assault Center here in Hamilton, where I located. And doing that work in a feminist, anti-racist, anti-oppressive organization, that's the framework of the Sexual Assault Center here in Hamilton, but also um, across Ontario and and Canada, many sexual assault centers and rape crisis centers have that framework. And so working in that that framework for 10 years really gave me that basis for a good anti-racism, anti-oppression lens that you you want to apply to organizations. And so I'm really grateful that I had those years there. at that time, quite a number of years ago now, I was providing some of the anti-racism training to the community. So that's where I sort of started with this work and then later moved on to other organizations and made sure that that anti-racism, anti-oppression framework was there. And lastly, ended up at the city of Hamilton as the manager of community initiatives, where I was working on the hate prevention work of the city of Hamilton, as well as other diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And I had 
known Cole since the 90s. We, <laughs> our paths would cross. We were buddies um, since then. And, you know, our work evolved over the years. And we, we came to both be at the city and decided, hey, let's take our show on the road and do this full time, providing this education and training. Thinking about the 90s, I was actually working, I worked for the entire decade of the 90s from like 91 till 99 at the women's bookstop in Hamilton, which was a feminist bookstore. Uh, I think it was the second to be opened in Canada. And uh, I was identifying as a lesbian in those days. I'm a trans man. And so I was living my life as a woman and I was uh, really involved in the women's community and feminist community. And I really learned almost everything that I know about anti-racism and feminist organizing through my time there. And then I moved into working with people experiencing homelessness. That's really my my calling, I would say, working on the streets as a street outreach worker and coordinator, interacting with people who experience marginalization in on many, many levels. You know, I found that when I was doing street outreach coordination that I, you know, had a little bit of a, an affinity for working with people who are marginalized, but also helping others to understand the complexity of homelessness and mental illness and, and all of these kinds of things. So I actually decided to go to OISE, which is at U of T, Ontario mm-hmm. Institute for Studies in Education, to do my master's in adult education and community development. Uh, So I graduated in 2010 and I ran an education program working with frontline workers working in homelessness. So educating them on whatever workshops they wanted. And then, um, as Pauline said, I moved over to the city and then we decided uh, after two or three years being there that we wanted to to do this full time by ourselves. Join forces, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it sounds like you both have slightly different but a very vast breadth of experience in the fields of anti-racism, anti-hate, anti-oppression and with the additional piece of people who are marginalized and and homeless. So, can you illustrate for our listeners what an inclusive and anti-racist environment might look like? It's complicated. It's as complex as human beings are complex. But really, when we're talking about inclusion, we're hearing so much about equity, diversity, and inclusion work these days. And it's important to understand what those words mean. Diversity is about uh, ensuring that there are many, many perspectives and, and voices at the table. Inclusion supports that, makes sure that that diversity of people are all feeling included and welcomed and living to their full potential in a workplace. And that is often what we don't see. We see that people are relegated to particular positions because of their identities. We see that opportunities that are most coveted are filled by people that are representing, you know, homogeneous identities. And We want to see more diversity in workplaces. We want people to be having those same opportunities regardless of their race, religion, sexual orientation, gender identities, and that's what we're not seeing. So this anti-racism, anti-oppression lens 
and working toward a more inclusive environment, you know, we want to see that there are, are more people represented and that people are living to their full potential. Mm-hmm. And everybody have as much access as everybody else, yeah. uh, whether it's in the workplace or social setting or or any recreational setting, it should be something that's across the board worldwide. I mean, we're speaking from a Western perspective at the moment, but clearly the challenges in different locations are different and um, can be more challenging in some some places than others. Another thing about inclusion is that it goes hand in hand with anti-racism because the other thing is that it's far too easy to become non-racist, you know, and, oh, I'm I'm not participating in racism. My ancestors, you know, came here, you know, years and years and years ago. So it's got nothing to do with me. But really an inclusive anti-racist environment means actually taking action against racism and actually, you know, and taking responsibility for that. And when we think about inclusion, we sometimes think about well, who's doing the including? And often it's it's that dominant group, you know, white mm-hmm. people, men, et cetera, who, who deem to include people who are marginalized. So really using that word inclusion is we have to think about it with that anti-racist lens and anti-oppression mm-hmm. lens because um, otherwise it can become a little bit tokenistic. Absolutely. That's, a, that's an excellent point. And it's something to to highlight, I think, that, yeah, who is doing the including? And should there be anybody who's in the role who is deeming who is included? So getting past that point, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So where do you see now the most glaring gaps in representation of diversity and inclusion in Western society. I mean, there's it's it's in the news always, particularly where we are in Canada and the United States. From from your perspective within your work, where do you see these gaps being most prevalent? Well, in all facets of life, there can be th- these uh, gaps for sure. Gaps in representation. I would say that the legal system, the criminal justice system, you know, we're, we're reading about major gaps. There was just a, actually a hunger strike at uh, our local jail in Hamilton recently, just the, this week, in fact, because of uh, poor living conditions and because of, you know, lack of access to mental health supports and, uh, you know, racism and, and all these other kinds of issues that are happening. And so I think that, you know, we do need to look at, at things like policing and thinking about the legal system and Indigenous people being overrepresented and Black people being overrepresented in our prison system. Uh, So Mm -hmm. there's lots of work to be done there. And I also feel that Queer Pride is coming up and I always start thinking about corporate sponsorships of Pride festivals and things like this, which really is about profit-making and virtue-signaling Right. In many ways, much more than it is about actual inclusion. And so, you know, putting out the pride flag for June doesn't necessarily mean that that place is inclusive. And so I think that the business sector could really do with some some help. Not all businesses are uh, to blame, but definitely when we're thinking about the private sector, we need to think about uh, responsibility to communities because that's who keeps them going. In my opinion, the glaring gaps could be in those two areas. Right. And I just add, um, in the education system, I think it's so important that people who are being educated 
especially young people and children and youth, need to see themselves reflected in educators and and administrators. I think so many people have good intentions, good hearts. There's much more awareness about uh, anti-racism and anti-oppression concepts these days. But those perspectives, you know, coming from perspectives where you've actually, you have lived experience as a racialized person, as someone who is queer, someone who is trans, those perspectives need to be reflected in our education system Mm -hmm. so that children who are learning, youth who are learning, are not just hearing no single stories, but Mm -hmm. instead are hearing from people with lived experience and connecting in that way. That is how, that is how we grow and, um, and change together. Absolutely. And see ourselves in the world and create our own sense of identity. I think those are really important points. And in terms of the educational system, not only in you know, the materials, the course materials, textbooks, et cetera, et cetera. But as you say, in the, in the instructors, in the professors, in the, in the classroom teachers, in the administrators, in the assistants, and again, that's accessibility to workplace positions and making sure that there's a a diverse number of communities represented. So there are frightening signals from a variety of places that indicate that there is a move backwards towards intolerance. And I'm thinking primarily of the anti-trans legislation and anti-abortion movement in the United States, both of which impact Black, Indigenous, and people of color and disability disproportionately. Can you give us some insight into what this means for the people who are impacted by this legislation? I mean, trans people have been around since the dawn of humanity. Just because of more uh, exposure, doesn't mean that this is a new trend or what have you. And the thing about this legislation is it really is misogynistic, which is uh, woman-hating, and it's obviously transphobic. And it's also racist as well, because trans women of colour are most impacted by anti-trans legislation. In fact, there's a, a statistic from 2021. It's around 375 trans people were murdered in the world in 2021. And out of those 375, over 50 of them were in the U.S. And the vast majority of people who were murdered were trans women of color. So there's those intersections of transphobia, misogyny and racism all working together to make some people's lives at so much more risk. And also this, you know, the the legislation around trans people is really around um, people thinking that, you know, uh, trans women are actually cisgender men trying to groom children or what have you. I mean, all statistics point to sexual assault uh, of children is happening by far over 95% of it is happening by cisgender heterosexual men. And not by trans women, not by gay men or or anything like that. So we really need to put this in perspective and understand that this that the this kind of legislation is about hate, it's about exclusion, and it's very political, and it's really, really dangerous for trans women and non-binary people and everyone who's trans, and especially young people who are who are really being targeted in very egregious ways. 
Just to add the sexual assaults that are taking place, yes, by heterosexual men, but also by men that that the person knows. So yeah. especially for children, it's a, it's a family member or a friend of the family, 90 something percent of the time. So just to add that piece. The anti-abortion movement in the United States, you know, for many of us, you know, we're just shocked that the abortion legislation should be reversed. But it just shows how tenuous it can be that these legislations and policies that provide people rights based on the human rights code, say, in in Ontario, um, are very precarious. And this is what is so frightening and so sad that legislation that provides people their rights based on gender, based on race, that these should be so precarious that at any given moment, as a movement becomes stronger, that is hate-based, that we can lose these rights in a moment. That is frightening. And as Cole says, you know, we have to be anti, we have to be anti-racist. We have to be anti misogynistic we have to be thinking about these things and and not thinking that they can't impact us they do you know women are put into positions where they cannot seek abortions legally where they are then having to seek abortions in very dangerous situations women are already being subjected to sexual assaults within their own homes they become pregnant or at risk of being pregnant, women need to be in a safer space, especially women who are Indigenous and Black, racialized, women with disabilities. As Cole says, all of these identities intersect and they can put women at greater risk if they are in situations where they are consistently less than others. As I say, these legislations are are precarious and we have to recognize that that's true. Yeah. Yeah. In the last little while, um, particularly with the abortion issue, I think it took a lot of us off guard that the wind could blow a different direction and all of these rights could just be snatched away. Like it took our breath away. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And we often think that legislations like that have been around forever. There were women who, who fought for decades to ensure that those legislations were in place. And it was not, it's not all that long ago, right? It's an important reminder that things can change. And we do see those cycles politically. And we see reactionary reactions to crises like the pandemic. And they really fuel movements that are based in fear and hate. I just wanted to say that also when we're thinking about these things, what it means for people impacted by such legislation, but we also have to think about whose responsibility is it to end the these things, to end the anti-trans legislation, to step up and speak out against it, and to end anti-abortion legislation. It's actually people who benefit and who have the most privilege, right? So if you're not trans, if you're a cisgender person, this anti-trans legislation doesn't affect you at all. But that legislation is coming from the cisgender community. And so members of the cisgender community need to be the ones to step up and and stand up and say, 
this is not okay, and be very assertive in their support of trans people everywhere. Because, you know, trans people are doing it. You know, we're, we're doing it. We're standing up and stepping up against this stuff, and it's still happening. And where the real power lies is in those who who have that privilege of, of not having to deal with this stuff. Right. And the same with, uh, you know, people who are not pregnant, who are not uh, intending on being pregnant. Also, it's their responsibility to step up and be loud about their support of people's right to choose abortion. Right. We've touched upon accessibility and travel for those with disabilities in this particular episode so far. How do you think that the travel industry could expand their diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives beyond what we're already seeing? Yeah, I haven't really thought about the tourism industry as much. Um, So this is a really good question. Cole and I haven't had a chance to work within the tourism industry, but we, of course, travel. I think that um, the diversity piece is really important. We see within the travel industry that people who are able-bodied tend to work in that industry. But if we saw more, more diversity within the hiring, then, because I've seen it in my own workspaces, where you've got people who say, you know what, when I come out this door in my wheelchair and the stairs are right there and I have to make this quick turn to get down the ramp, that's dangerous. <laughs> and I would not have seen that. And if we don't have people who are making decisions and, and doing part of the planning, then a lot of things can be taken for granted. It's almost as if you don't experience it yourself. It's very difficult to see for some exactly. people, right? They yeah. don't understand, they can't comprehend. That's right. Um, Cole and I will often talk about in our trainings, we talk about privilege and it's a privilege to not have to think about such things. But if we're truly going to be anti, then we have to raise our awareness and start to think about these things, even if they don't affect us. This is how we move things forward. If when we think, you know, if it affects one of us, then it affects all of us. And I've worked in some workplaces where we were pushing for changes in policy and legislation at government levels or um, communities services that affect everyone in our community. And we would often say, if you look at things from a lens where there's inclusive practice for people with disabilities or for women who are racialized or for seniors, and you make policy that is making sure that things are okay for those folks, that service or that program is going to be fine for everybody else. Mm, they're going to benefit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My thinking, just, you know, a little bit thinking about the travel industry is that just thinking about going to resorts like Cuba or Mallorca in Spain or what have you, you know, there's an awful lot of white British people, you know, especially in Spain, but then Canadians and what have you going to Cuba. And just thinking about there's an awful lot of poverty tourism happening, you know, going to poor countries where a lot of their GDP has got to do with tourism, which so we definitely need that happening. But also for the travel industry to encourage social responsibility amongst travelers and amongst tourists, especially uh, because the number of times when you, you know you 
you go to a, a resort that's five stars or what have you, and you know, very very poor people are are the ones you know cleaning the rooms, etc., and uh, not actually being at the front desk uh, and things like this. And the tour operators often look like the people who are going, which is there's this real assumption of of wealth. And in fact, you need a bit of wealth in order to be able to travel. But for the travel industry to to understand that it's not just about sort of pillaging. It's actually about contributing to economies and contributing to the betterment of economies, especially because of the legacy of colonialism, uh, which, you know, many of these countries that we go to to get a you know good suntan and cheap food or what have you, were colonized by the ancestors of the very people who are going there to visit. So I think that's another thing that is important to think about in the tourism and travel industry. Yeah, lots of opportunity for change there. For the better for everybody. Yeah, as Pauline said. Yeah, exactly. So what can we do as allies, both at at home and abroad, to further the objective of anti-racism and anti-oppression in our daily lives? It's so important for people to recognize what being a, a good ally is all about. We talk about the five tips for being a good ally, and they are understand and recognize your privilege. That privilege means that you're not seeing certain things. You don't have to. They don't affect you. So become more aware and recognize that privilege. Listen and do your homework. Listen to those that are experiencing oppression. And and don't rely on their voices. You know, do some homework. Find out more about what the needs are, what the issues are that people are facing. Speak up, but not over. So you want to, you know, lend your voice to the call to action, but also don't speak over those that are experiencing the oppression. We often hear nothing about us without us. Let people say what they need. You're going to make mistakes and apologize when you do. Yeah. And, you know, to err is human. We all make mistakes and it's perfectly fine. But, you know, uh, getting defensive about it is not the way to go. You know, apologize, listen to the person who is telling you that you've made the mistake and then uh, commit to changing your behavior and move move forward. And then the last one. Ally is a verb. <laughs> you've got to do the work. Right. One through four. <laughs> <laughs> to quote. Francesca Ramsey, who has this great video, and she can be found at uh, at Cheska Lee, if you're looking on social media. Yeah, ally is a verb. We've got to do the work. Cole talked about being anti and not non, that we right. want to be taking action and not just sitting back and saying, yeah, that doesn't really affect me. And I'm sure everything's going to be okay. No, we need active movements. We need to speak out and speak up and lend our voices and our our actions. Thank you so much for chatting with us today, both of you. It was such a pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about Pauline and Cole's very important work as anti-racism and anti-oppression consultants, you can find them by going to Intersecting Anti-Racism, Anti-Oppression Consultant on LinkedIn and soon on the web at www.intersecting.ca. Thank you so much, Pauline and Cole. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Heather. Thanks so much. It's amazing. Thank you. 
Well, that was an incredibly inspiring and insightful conversation. I think the key to travel really is choosing a destination where you feel safe and comfortable being who you are, which is so aptly put by the government of Australia in a recent Smart Traveler publication. Research is everything, right, Walker? It is. Be aware of a country's laws and customs pertaining to gender identity, gender equality, and sexual orientation. The better educated you are, the better prepared. Because, of course, nasty surprises when abroad are not fun. If you don't like the politics, the biases, or laws, perhaps reconsider your plans. Otherwise, it's best to abide by the host country's laws to avoid any unpleasant circumstances. It should also be noted, however, that often laws are vague and use terms like vagrancy or public nuisance or public morals that can entrap and criminalize 2SLGBTQ plus people. Be aware, too, that laws may also differ regionally, even in one country. Right. I've heard that in some countries, penalties can range from fines to jail time or even corporal punishment. In a small number of countries, you could be given the death penalty as well. I know, which is terrifying. I think understanding the laws and customs of any destination is good practical advice for anyone, but particularly so if you are a member of a community who might be at risk of discrimination or persecution. Mm -hmm. For example, my sister, her wife, and child have to be mindful of where they travel to ensure it's a safe and secure environment. Not all countries recognize a same-sex marriage or parental relationship status, which could have implications for health care, such as next-of-kin rights, legal rights, and more. Yeah, it's also really important to point out that local laws can often be silent regarding trans or intersex people. Destinations that criminalize same-sex relations may also use the same laws to outlaw gender identities, something to take into consideration for sure. Mm -hmm. And if you're traveling to a more conservative country, it is possible that you may be the target for violence if you are 2SLGBTQ+. Don't assume that you will be protected and supported by the local authorities if you are a victim of violence. Depending on the destination, sometimes reported assaults are ignored and some travelers may even experience discrimination or abuse at the hands of local authorities. Reporting an assault could even result in being arrested or being jailed for reporting a crime. Wow. So how do we find this information on the destinations we propose to travel to? Well, Smart Traveler suggests that one joins online forums for up-to-date information of other people's experiences at your preferred destination. The Human Dignity Trust also provides information on countries that criminalize 2SLGBTQ plus people, and you can access a guide on global anti-2SLGBTQ plus laws through Human Rights Watch. Although you can educate yourself on what legal protection is available, there is no guarantee that any protection will be enforced or provided. Provided. Those are really good resources. And of course, we'll include these in the show notes. So are there known parts of the world that can be more dangerous for some communities at risk? Well, according to the responsible traveler, there are many countries where homosexuality remains illegal. Uh, in Brunei, for example, they introduced the stoning as a punishment for gay sex in 2019. Oh my God, 2019. I know, 2019. That is unbelievably backwards and terrifying. Yes, the same article also noted that there is a fine line, of course, between being respectful of local customs and beliefs and giving in to a nation's homophobic views. People need to make up their own minds how far they're willing to go. 
and that once people are informed that they need to decide if they are comfortable with traveling to certain destinations and whether or not they're willing to abide by each country's laws and social constructs. Some tourists may not wish to support discriminatory beliefs. Others won't want them to get in the way of their travel experiences and believe they have the right to travel where they choose. Yeah, well, I can see both sides, but I certainly do take it into consideration when I choose our travel destinations for my family. It might be wise to go to your local government website to get the most up-to-date information on traveling to specific destinations and just what precautions one should take. The travel advisories are usually fairly detailed. They are. So just as the 2S LGBTQ plus community may experience discrimination and persecution, the travel experience of visual minorities has its own unique challenges. For instance, a Parisian travel blogger named Rubens Fills, author of Traveling While Black and the website Been Around the Globe, wrote an article entitled The Travelers Facing Down Racism to See the World. Rubens states that for many black travelers, preparing to visit a destination isn't just a matter of booking tickets, buying foreign currency, or packing a swimsuit. Often it involves mentally preparing to be confronted by something barely mentioned in guidebooks, racism. He further states that many non-black people are surprised or even shocked when they find out that black people do research related to racism before they travel. Unfortunately, it's not surprising, but it certainly does highlight privilege, does it? It certainly does. In his article, Rubens Fills noted a statistic from MMGY Global, a U.S. marketing agency, that said black leisure travelers in the United States spent $109.4 billion on travel in 2019. So the industry better take heed. While some travelers avoid countries which have a reputation for being intolerant, Others travel with trepidation. And then there are people like Kemkin Casanelli. Kemkin Casanelli reports on his blog that he travels despite the fear of racism. He says, I take it as an opportunity to change people's perceptions. But it's not always just a matter of this country is safe and this country is not. As Christian Lowe, the creator of the Green Book Project, was quoted as saying, just because a place is safe for me as a straight black male doesn't mean that my sister, who is a queer black woman, would also have the same experience and feel safe there too. So true. Have you come across any blogs where people can access information geared specifically to those interested in learning more about traveling as a tourist of color? I did actually. Some great blogs created by black travelers are The Sophisticated Life, I Love to Globetrot, and Five to Nine Traveler. Again, I'll put those in the show notes, Walker. Often, though, the love of travel cannot be denied. And what is travel if not a challenge and an adventure? Have you ever heard of the blind traveler, Harris? No, I don't think so. Well, the blind traveler was a nickname given to the adventurer and author James Holman, a British man who lived and traveled in the early 1800s. Not only was he blind, but he also suffered from pain and limited mobility. Nevertheless, he went on a series of solo journeys. And remember, at that time, travel was slow and much more arduous. Mm -hmm. By 1846, he had become the first blind man to circumnavigate the globe and also to reach every continent. Holy, that's impressive. It is, isn't it? One mm. man I came across, though, could be considered a modern day James Holman. His name is Tony Gillisand, and he is a blind author and traveler from the UK. He was diagnosed as an infant with a rare genetic visual impairment, and before the age of five, it was also realized that he was partially 
actually deaf in both ears. Despite these challenges, he has traveled extensively despite even requiring a kidney transplant at one point. Now, this may not be an up-to-date figure, but the last I read, he had traveled to 128 countries as well as all of the United States and all of the Canadian provinces. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. How wonderful. What an inspiration he is. I agree. He is absolutely putting me to shame, that's for sure. (laughs) And he isn't just sitting around in his hotel room and taking in sort of these sit-down concerts either. On his website, he says that he's bungee jumped 17 times, been skydiving three times, zorbing twice, driven jet boats, ridden motorbikes, jet skied, and the list goes on, Harris. Okay, hold on a second. (laughs) What is zorbing? Well, I thought you would ask that. It's also known as globe riding, where you roll down a hill and in a big transparent sphere. Oh, nice. Like a hamster in a wheel. I think I've seen that. Yeah, (laughs) not my cup of tea, but apparently it's Tony's. So in all this time, he must have found himself in some difficult or dangerous situations, right? He has. Apparently, he nearly drowned while whitewater rafting in 2004 on the Zambezi River in Zambia, Southern Africa. He claims it was frightening, but thrilling. Uh, I can see that as frightening, (laughs) but not so much the thrilling part. So he's probably a true adrenaline junkie. He also said he survived being trapped in Mali during a military coup d'etat. Holy. Okay, now we're way beyond my comfort zone. (laughs) Now... Tony lost me at bungee jumping, honestly, <laughs> I'd like to see you bungee jump there, Walker. Yeah, thanks. So he clearly has a real passion for travel and adventure and not simply an interest in just vacationing somewhere different. You got that right. Tony says that he loves the challenge from getting from one place to another independently. He experiences a country and culture with all his other senses. What's left of his hearing, smell, feeling the wind on his face in the pavement and ground as he walks. I love it. Sounds like nothing will stop this man and certainly not any physical limitations. Tony is all about doing and not talking. Listen to this, Harris. In Tony's words, traveling is like sex. If you talk about it too much, you never do it. (laughs) Okay, well, there (laughs) you go. Words to live by there, Harris. (laughs) So does Tony share an idea which cities are considered the most accessible for people with disabilities? Well, I discovered a recent survey that polled 3,500 tourists with disabilities, and the result was a list of the top 10 most accessible cities in the world. Cities were rated on transport links, proximity of accommodation to cultural attractions, shops and restaurants, and the availability of information about accessibility. In the USA, Las Vegas, New York, and Orlando top the accessibility list. And in Europe, it's Amsterdam, London, and Paris. Now in Asia, Shanghai, Singapore, and Tokyo are the most accessible. And in Australia, it's Sydney. Hmm. And if you're traveling to a city or location that is not on this list, there are other resources to check out too in advance of your trip. For example, Blind Girl Adventures is a blog by Sassy Weil, a disability awareness consultant who is fully blind. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. It's a super resource. Sassy has posted her seven top tips for traveling blind, especially if you are traveling solo, which could really be applied to most people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Her first suggestion is to prepare. Always keep a printed copy of your itinerary and all your important papers, including insurance and emergency phone numbers and passport on your body in case your bags get lost. Mm -hmm. And also have a copy in a folder on your phone. Send this information as well to someone you trust. Know where you are going well in advance. 
Is the airport small or large? And how far from the destination airport are your accommodations? That sounds like solid advice for all travelers. Definitely. She also suggests making use of special assistance offered by airports. You can often even have airport staff meet you at the taxi stand. They will help you with getting you to where you need to go to check in and help with luggage. In fact, some airports will allow you to purchase access to a lounge, which is less busy. Yeah, that can be really helpful and it's much more comfortable. I know there's also usually assistance getting to the plane, right, Walker? Yes, airport staff are available to help you board. Sometimes this will involve getting on a small bus or buggy. Yeah, I've ridden these golf cart type vehicles in the airport before with my mom. Exactly. Very helpful. Also, it is a good airline practice that disabled passengers are the first to board and the last to leave the plane. I imagine this would eliminate some of the stress of potentially being hurried by other passengers. Yeah, it is kind of a stressful moment when you're deplaning and everybody's hustling. Exactly. Just as there is help available with boarding, there's also assistance available deplaning, finding your luggage and leaving the airport. Excellent. So really, support and assistance can be found at most airports from start to finish. She has tips for when you're at your destination as well. She recommends using Uber because it can be used with voiceover. And in doing so, there's no need to handle cash. Oh, that's a good idea, especially if you're using foreign currency. I imagine it would remove unnecessary potential frustrations. Right. She highlights many ways to make the most of travel, like engaging the assistance of the hotel staff joining guided tours and small group interactive experiences like food and wine tastings that can offer a full experience of your surroundings. Right. Local experience guys can really fully flesh out the experience of a destination, offering knowledge and insight that you wouldn't otherwise be privy to. So are there specialized tours for people with disabilities, Walker? Absolutely, there are. In fact, there are travel tour operators that focus solely on providing customized tours and trips to travelers with disabilities. Some even plan down to the last detail, including taxis, sightseeing, accommodation, and more. These agencies operate trips all over the world, too. So the sky is the limit, Harris. Oh, good. That's reassuring to know. I once had the privilege of seeing motivational speaker and disability advocate. Spencer West. You know who he is, right, Walker? Spencer is a gay double amputee. He is so inspirational and often speaks about overcoming adversity and advocates for inclusion, equity, and justice for people with disabilities and the 2SLGBTQ plus community. As he is often traveling for speaking engagements, he does discuss the difficulties he encounters while traveling as a person who uses a wheelchair. It is definitely worth following Spencer on social media, or even better, try to see one of his talks. He really brings home the importance of inclusion of people with disabilities and advocating for breaking down institutional, physical, and social barriers. Yeah, I follow Spencer. I haven't had the pleasure of listening to him in person, but I look forward to that opportunity. Yeah. One innovative initiative I discovered in my research is currently taking place in Greece. Apparently, they're working to make over 100 beaches wheelchair-friendly. Oh, wow. That's an amazing idea. So how are they doing that, Walker? Well, the device is called C-Track. The C-Track is a free ramp-like system with a remote-controlled chair for those with mobility issues to gain unassisted C-access by moving the chair down the ramp towards the water. 
beaches and sea are not wheelchair friendly. So this really allows accessibility to those individuals who may not otherwise be able to experience easily a day at the beach, right? I've seen beach wheelchairs before, you know, with those big oversized tires, but this sounds that it will be much more widely available to people. Very clever. It does. We take for granted the beautiful experience of swimming in the sea. It should be something available for all. Absolutely. There are also accessible hiking trails and even hiking wheelchairs. For example, here in Canada, Ontario Trails lists partially and completely accessible trails that can accommodate wheelchairs. So we're moving in the right direction. Right. Moving indoors, one thing that we could easily overlook is the simple security feature of a peephole in our hotel room. Some hotels worldwide have made an effort to install a second peephole lower on the hotel room door so that people in wheelchairs, or especially short people like us, Harris, (laughs) can easily see who's on the other side of the door. Right. Well, there are so many changes that are being implemented, but a lot could be done more widely Mm -hmm. to better support travelers. According to J.D. Shadle in an article for Condé Nast Traveler, just finding a washroom can be very difficult for many trans and non-binary travelers. In 2021, Google added a search function to their Maps app so that people can search for local places with gender-neutral washrooms. Small changes can lead to societal change, right? Mm -hmm. I also read that after conducting a survey, Booking.com discovered that more than half of 2SLGBTQ plus travelers had what they referred to as less than welcoming or uncomfortable experiences at a property where they were staying. In response, Booking.com created the Travel Proud program, which features thousands of proud certified properties, which could be easily identified by a badge on the property page. Alternatively, there are 2SL GBTQ plus vacation rental platforms, such as Fab Stays. With a Z on the end. With a Z. Okay, I love that. (laughs) This reminds me a bit of Noir B&B, which is a vacation rental platform created by Stefan Grant, a Jamaican-born rapper from Florida. He had a frightening and life-changing experience after renting an Airbnb in 2015. Apparently, a neighbor called the police and reported that he and his friends were robbing the house that he was renting. Horrible. Grant says that people who use his vacation rental platform will know that the person who provided this space respects their humanity and dignity. It truly is about creating a world where people can move, love, travel, and just be safe, isn't it, Harris? Yeah, it really is. And we can all do our part, Walker. Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your hosts, Harrison Walker. Subscribe to follow us each week as we continue the conversation. You can also say hi to us on Instagram at at Harrison Walker. We would love to hear from you.